Welcome to Schweitzer Church. We're so glad you've joined us today for worship. I'm Sheila and I'll be your host for this online worship experience. If this is your first time with us, we invite you to check in and we'll have a special gift that we'll send out to you by email this coming week. This week, we're excited to be in week two of our series, Revelation. We know that Pastor Spencer has a great message ahead for us in just a few minutes. Speaking of the message, you can find sermon discussion questions and more online at schweitzer.church next. And now, here's Stephanie with our announcements. Hi, I'm Stephanie. Welcome to Schweitzer. If you're looking to take a next step and get connected with a small group or class, we would love to have you join us this fall. We're just getting started. We have groups and classes that meet all throughout the week. You can join a Bible study or discussion or connect with one of our encouragement groups like Grief Share and find some guidance and encouragement from loving people. You can find out more at schweitzer.church groups or by stopping by the Blue Booth today. Coming up next month on October 21st and 22nd, we're hosting a healing prayer seminar and a service to follow. This is a great opportunity for people in our church to understand prayer at a deeper level and also a great opportunity for caregivers in our community. We have a team from Falls Church, Virginia coming to lead us. You can find out more about this opportunity online at schweitzer.church prayer. Ladies, if you haven't signed up yet for our women's retreat, this is the week. Join us for our hometown retreat right here in Springfield on Friday, September 30th and Saturday, October 1st. You'll hear from other Schweitzer ladies about the goodness and beauty of God and have a lot of fun together too. This is a great opportunity to get connected and launch into fall. You can sign up and find out more online at schweitzer.church women. One last thing. Last Sunday, we announced a change in our service and class times beginning on October 2nd. Our traditional worship service will remain at 9 a.m., but modern worship is moving back to 10.30 a.m. This change in times will allow us to offer new classes and still allow us time between services to connect with one another. We're also adding a new 9 a.m. class for people who'd like to connect before modern worship. If you have any questions about any of our classes, please stop by the Blue Booth in the lobby today. We are so glad you have joined us on this beautiful morning. Let's continue with worship. Thanks, Stephanie, for letting us know what's going on in our church right now. We invite you to take part in any or all of these great events. If you're joining us live today, we invite you to join in the chat. Say hello to your friends or give us your insights. If you're in need of prayer, we have someone waiting in the prayer room for you. Just hit the prayer button and they'll be right with you. And now, on this beautiful day, let's continue in worship with praise and song and our prayers. When I miss the light, but 
As we come to this time of prayer, I invite you to bring your joys and your concerns to the feet of God as we pray together. Holy God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for the blessings that surround us. Sometimes we fail to see those blessings and, and we ask forgiveness for times that we don't say thank you. God, we know that you never promised this life to be easy but you did promise to be with us through the good times and the bad times, through every moment of our lives. Help us not to run away from you, but to open our minds and our hearts to you, to let you be with us, to let you walk with us through the good times and through the difficult times of our lives. We thank you so much that you are here for us. And we pray together now, as you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. 
As we come to this time of offering, we want to celebrate this week the great partnership that we share with Pittman Elementary School here in Springfield. We have folks who volunteer as tutors, who volunteer as reading buddies. We do a support system for the staff at the school. And this December, we're going to have a great toy store to support the families at Pittman. Your gifts make all of these things possible. Thank you so much for supporting ministries here. And we want to remind you that you can do that by going online at schweitzer.church give. Thank you so much for all you do to support our ministries. And now... Here's Pastor Spencer with week two of Revelation. Welcome today. My name is Spencer. So glad that you're here with us. We are on part two of a a series of the most interesting book of the Bible, and that is Revelation. Now, this series is going to be different for a few reasons. One, Revelation is just different. The series is going to be different because we're going to be talking about different kinds of things. I mean, today we're going to be talking about a seven-headed beast. It's like, what in the world? What do you do with that? It's just a different kind of stuff you find in this last book of the Bible. Um, two, the other reason why this series is going to be different is because we're going to be talking about Revelation in a, in a way that you might not be expecting. And so if you've heard a lot of sermons from uh, Revelation, the way we're talking about this might be a little different than you've experienced uh, before, because what I've found is that a lot of people start to really pay attention to Revelation starting in chapter four of this book. And that's because chapter four is the first chapter with a lot of the, the weird stuff. And so people really gravitate towards that um, in, in Revelation. And, and so but what, what, what we're doing, though, is we're not looking necessarily at the, those things. We're, we're really focusing our attention on the first few chapters, because if you can understand the first few chapters um, of Revelation, the rest of the book begins to make so much more sense. When you give it what we call context, everything begins to make sense. And as you read the first two chapters, one of the things you discover is that Revelation was written to real people in a real place, in real time, with real struggles, real questions, real things that need to be addressed. The first two chapters of Revelation, it teaches us that this book was written to um, seven different churches that the, lived in what the Roman Empire called the province of Asia. We call that the modern day nation of Turkey. So here's a map that shows these seven churches that this book was written to. And as you can see, these seven churches are all closely related. They live in these Roman cities, these Roman cities of, of, of this province. And they, uh, geographically, they're closely related. They would have had similar struggles, similar questions, similar things that needed to be addressed. And so as the book opens, it opens with seven messages to each one of these individual churches. And then this gives context to the other things that we find in the book. And so what we're doing in this series is we are spending each week, each of these seven weeks, reading from one of the messages to these seven churches, and then using that to springboard into some other things in the book that, that when you understand the message to this church, it begins to make more sense. And so today, it's the second week, so we're going to be in the second message, and that is to the church, the message to the church in Smyrna. So Revelation chapter 2, we're going to start reading in verse 8, and here's how it goes. It says, 
to the angel or the messenger, could also be translated as messenger, of the church in Smyrna, write. These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came back to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. So you're poor and yet you're rich. It means that you're rich in a way other than having lots of money. Now, what's interesting about this is that Smyrna, out of these seven churches we're reading about, is by far the wealthiest Roman city. In fact, it's one of the wealthiest Roman cities in the entire empire. And so there's a an interesting mismatch that's happening here. Whereas the city has all of this wealth and yet the Christians are living in poverty. So what's that about? Why is there this mismatch? Well, let's, let's keep reading here. Jesus goes on, he says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. A synagogue of Satan. Now, that's something we need to talk about. A synagogue of Satan. What, what is that about? Well, the word Satan doesn't mean what you think it means. Uh, the word Satan, what it, what it really means is a Hebrew word that means accuser. The Greek word uh, devil is just the Greek version of the same word. It means accuser. And so as you read through the Bible, a lot of times what you see Satan doing is he's accusing people or he's accusing God of various things. And so a synagogue of Satan, you start to wonder, well, then what is the accusation that's, uh, that's before them? And it makes, makes sense that they'd be a synagogue of Satan as there's slander that's mentioned in that verse. And so there's some sort of slander, some sort of accusation that's happening at, at, with these uh, Christians in Smyrna. So what's, what's the accusation? Well, when this was written, the major religion of this part of the world was uh, not Christianity, certainly not Christianity, it was not Judaism, it was not Islam, that didn't even exist for another 600 years. It was, it was not even the Roman mythology of like the Roman gods like Jupiter or the Greek gods with Zeus and, and, the, and that pantheon of gods. The major religion of this part of the Roman Empire, really the whole Roman Empire, was what people called the emperor cult. The emperor cult. And here's what that meant. Um, Julius Caesar was the first Caesar. That's where the name comes from, Caesar. Julius Caesar was the first emperor. Um, when he was killed and his successor took over, his name was Augustus. So think Luke chapter 2. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world, right? That's Luke chapter 2. We read it in Christmas. Well, Augustus, what he did as uh, Julius Caesar's successor, he declared that Julius Caesar was a god. He, what we call, deified him. He made him a divinity. That meant that Augustus, who took over after Julius Caesar, became what he called himself the, ready, son of God. Julius Caesar was the son of God. And every Caesar that came after him, every emperor that came after him, called themselves the son of God because it was began to believe that this Caesar was a God in and of himself. And this was the major religion of the, uh, of the Roman Empire. And so there was a saying, a, a creed that was said amongst those who believed this in the Roman Empire. And they would say this. They would say, Caesar is Lord. Does that sound familiar? Because the first creed of the Christians was they would say, Jesus is Lord. So this is what was spread throughout the Roman Empire. And in the region of the seven churches here in, in ancient uh, 
the province of Asia, well, the church in Smyrna, this this Roman city in Smyrna was most well known for this emperor cult, the worship of Caesar. Now, in the Roman Empire, the Romans didn't really care if you worshipped your own gods as long as you still worshipped the Caesar and you still confessed that Caesar is Lord. This was their way of maintaining control of the Roman Empire, that everyone had this common creed that they believed in. Now, there were certain groups that the Romans would conquer and they would fight back against this emperor cult because they didn't want to believe that the emperor, the Caesar, was actually God. And so they would push back at this and there would be uprisings. And so the Romans were eventually to certain groups like, okay, 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 you can have an exemption. You don't have to worship the Caesar as long as you just stop causing trouble. And one of those groups that got an exemption was the Jews. And so the Jews were exempted from having to worship the Caesar. And of course, the earliest Christians, Peter, James, John, Paul, were all Jews. But they believed that Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was not just for Jews. He was for everybody. So that Jews and Gentiles, the whole world could be saved through Jesus. And so Jesus was, was, a, was for everybody and they went into the world to proclaim this to everybody. And so when the Romans looked at the earliest Christians, they saw them as a subset of Jews. But when the Jews looked at the earliest Christians, they didn't see it the same way. So the Romans gave the earliest Christians this exemption. You don't have to worship the Caesar as God because they saw them as Jews. But the Jews pushed back at this. In fact, in some places the synagogue leaders would go to the Roman authorities and they would accuse the Christians of taking advantage of this legal exemption that was given to them. They would accuse them of breaking the law, a synagogue of accusers, a synagogue of Satan. It begins to make sense as you understand what was going on in the world that the, that the Jewish synagogue in Smyrna was, was taking advantage of this and accusing the Christians of breaking the law. Now, that's a lot of history we've covered so far. And I hope you're still with me because we're not done yet. Imagine what it would have been like to be one of these Christians in Smyrna. I mean, what would it, what would it have been like? Because you would have had this choice that you would have had to make between living into your convictions that Jesus is the Lord of all, that he is the one who created all, that he is the ruler of all things, or you would have had to uh, go along with the crowd and also confess that Caesar is Lord. You would have had this real choice um, to come. And so, and so you got to wonder, like, what would you do? This is not an easy choice to make because this, this choice to, to either hold to your convictions and declare that Jesus is Lord or go along with a crowd that Caesar is Lord, it comes at a cost. I mean, there's no First Amendment. There's no freedom of religion in the Roman Empire. This is a choice that comes at a cost. I mean, if you're going to hold on to your conviction that Jesus is Lord, you are going to become an enemy of the Roman state. And this is how going to have consequences. I mean, this is not a hypothetical question of what am I going to do when push comes to shove? Am I going to hold on to this conviction or am I going to go along with the crowd? Because this comes at a real cost. I mean, this happened to where this is the persecution that began to take place in the church. I mean, it was, it was possible that you, as did happen to many Christians, you might have your property confiscated because you're a lawbreaker. And so you wonder, Am I willing to lose my home for the sake of Christ? Or you might, as happened to many Christians, uh, you, you might lose your ability to sell your goods in the marketplace 
because you no longer hold that Caesar is Lord. So you wonder, am I willing to lose my job for the sake of the gospel? Or it might happen as it did happen to many Christians where you might be jailed, beaten, or killed because you don't confess Caesar is Lord. And so you wonder, am I willing to lose my freedom, my health, my life for the sake of the gospel? I mean, these are real questions that you would have had to ask. And when you realize that this is what they face, these, these first Christians, you, you really quickly understand that it's no wonder why there's this mismatch between this incredibly wealthy city in Smyrna and the Christians who are living in poverty because they've chosen to pay the price for their convictions. They're enduring this persecution that's coming upon them, and they're paying the price for their confession that Jesus, in fact, is Lord. In fact, listen to what Jesus says to them next. This is um, verse 10. Verse 10, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. He doesn't give them a promise of deliverance or ease or comfort. He doesn't say, I'm going to take care of you in the midst of this. He says, listen, do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. He goes on, he says, I tell you the devil will put some of you in prison to test you and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. 10 is a figurative number in the Bible. Sevens and threes are always very important numbers. Seven plus three, of course, is 10. And then he says, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. And if you're reading from your Bible, you need to underline that phrase, victor's crown. So imagine that uh, you're a Christian in Smyrna. You live in this incredibly wealthy area, yet life is really hard for you. There's all this persecution. There's this question that's before you. What am I willing to do? What am I willing to suffer? And as I think about this, this dilemma that these Christians lived in, I, I'm drawn to that phrase, um, victor's crown, because this is what's offered to them, a victor's crown. And a victor's crown, of course, it implies that there is... Um, a struggle and yet victory on the other side of the struggle. Now in Revelation, there is this major theme throughout the book, really throughout the book, of um, a major struggle that takes place. Uh, you read about the struggle in several places. And so let's go look about this struggle. Let's, let's read about this struggle. And you see this in several places. So let's go to first Revelation 13, and then we'll go to some other places here to see how the struggle is lived out throughout the pages of this book. And so in Revelation 13, um, we read about uh, one of the weirdest things in the book, the seven-headed beast, but listen to what Revelation 13 describes and how it describes the struggle that many of these Christians must have been living through. So here's how Revelation 13 starts. It says, the dragon, think serpent, reptile, right? This is about Satan. The dragon stood on the shore of the sea and I saw a beast coming out of the sea. It had 10 horns and seven heads with 10 crowns on its horns, and on each head a blasphemous name. The beast I saw, listen to this, it re resembled a leopard, but had feet like those of a bear, and a mouth like that of a lion. So leopard, bear, lion. This is what the three things are here, the leopard, the bear, and the lion. What in the world is this about? A seven-headed beast and a dragon, and it's got these, these various things that are coming on here. Well, John, who's writing this, is borrowing from another chapter in the Bible, Daniel chapter 7. And in Daniel chapter 7, there are these four beasts or four kind of monsters that emerge in this vision that Daniel has, um, a, a leopard, a bear, and a lion. And then there's one that's indescribable. So um, in this 
in this vision that Daniel has, these four beasts, they, they all represent different kingdoms with one kingdom that, that overcomes all of the others. But in Revelation 13, where Daniel or John comes in, he kind of makes all of those different creatures into one beast, one monster. And he describes it as having a seven heads and 10 horns, 10 crowns. And, and you got to wonder, like, what in the world is Daniel talking about or John talking about here? And so the natural question, of course, becomes, well, who is this? Who, who is the seven-headed beast that's being described here? And, and people have spent a lot of time through the centuries trying to guess and speculate about who it is the Bible's describing. Um, in the 1500s, Martin Luther thought that the seven-headed beast in Revelation 13, that this is the Pope. After all, if you know his history, the Pope is the one who caused most of Martin Luther's problems. Um, in more recent times, you know, there's some people who have thought that the seven-headed beast is going to be something like uh, the United Nations or some other one-world government. I'm pretty sure every sitting president has at one time been accused of being the seven-headed beast. Um, I read somewhere once that uh, there's a, a thought that maybe the seven-headed beast is one that's going to control everything, that this is actually like some sort of super computer that's going to control everything in the future. Like this is the, the speculation that's here. But if, but again, let's remember, this is written to real people in a real place in real time. And we can speculate all day long about who this is going to be. But if you were a Christian in Smyrna in the late first century, and you were going through all this persecution and you read this letter and you read about a seven headed beast with 10 horns and 10 crowns, who would it have been for you? Well, there's this way of talking about the Roman Empire, the capital Rome, where people call Rome a city on seven hills. And at this point in history, um, there have been 10 Caesars. And so as you read about this and you think about the struggle that the Christians in Smyrna might have had, you quickly begin to realize that when they would have read this book and heard about the seven-headed beast, they would have understood this clearly to be the Roman Empire. That's coming and it's going to cause harm to them. And so this leads to the next line, which is so incredibly important. It says, the dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So the, the beast is causing all of this trouble for these people. But it's not really about the beast. Really, it's about the dragon and the power behind the beast is this dragon. It is, it is Satan. So verse 3, it says, one of the heads of the beast seemed to have a fatal wound, but the fatal wound had been healed. Now, one of the more prominent Caesars was named Nero. And we'll talk about Nero later in the series. But after Nero died, there were four Caesars in one year. And it looked like the Roman Empire was about to head into a civil war again. And then an, another Caesar emerged and, and he was able to hold on and create stability back into the Roman Empire. And so it was as if the fatal wound of the Roman Empire was, was, was healed. And this leads to the next line, so, so troubling. But it says, the whole world was filled with wonder and followed the beast. But remember, they're not really following the beast, they're following the dragon because the dragon is the one who's giving the beast his authority. So if you're a Christian in Smyrna, it would look as if the whole world is controlled by the Roman Empire. Now we keep reading here, verse four. It says, people worshiped the dragon because he had given authority to the beast and they also worshiped the beast and asked, who is like the beast? Who can wage war against it? Who can possibly be more powerful and win victory over the beast? Like who can possibly overcome, you know, the Roman Empire? And don't forget at this time in history, uh, the major religion of the Roman Empire, 
is the worship of Caesar. Caesar is Lord. This is what they're, 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 they're describing over and over again. So the book of Revelation, it goes on in this major theme throughout the book of this struggle that exists in the world where the struggle of the beast and this dragon that's trying to rule the world the rule of the world and fool everyone into also worshiping the beast. This is this major, major struggle that you see throughout uh, the book of Revelation. Now, again, imagine you're a Christian in Smyrna. In the late first century, and this is written, there's all kinds of persecution. There's all kinds of suffering and struggling, and you've seen it firsthand. Maybe you yourself have lost a business. Maybe you've had property confiscated. Maybe someone you love has been jailed. Maybe it's your husband, your wife, your child. Maybe maybe you've had people you love who have been killed. This is a real possibility for, for these folks. Maybe the, the church, the Christian community that you surround yourself with is struggling and, and maybe you have to meet in secret. Maybe as you gather together, you have to whisper your hymns as you sing them, which some Christians still have to do around the world today. Like, this is the reality that you face. Well, what are some of the questions you think you might be asking if you were in that place? You'd be thinking to yourself questions like, how long am I going to suffer? When is God going to come and deliver us? When am I going to finally um, have freedom from this? I, like, when, when is this suffering finally going to be over? And, and is this suffering even worth it? I mean, these are the kinds of natural questions we would start to ask when we have to suffer in this kind of way. And because of this, I don't think it's on accident that when the Bible describes the Christian life, it often uses words like endurance, patience, perseverance, because the testimony of Christians throughout the ages is that while we have to suffer, our suffering is never the end of the story. We can look at it with an eternal perspective. I think about what Paul writes, for instance, in 2 Corinthians. Paul, of course, suffered tremendously for the gospel. He was shipwrecked on multiple occasions. He was beaten. He was left for dead. He eventually even gave his life for the sake of the gospel. And listen to what he writes in 2 Corinthians um, chapter 4 about the suffering that happens in the Christian life. He writes, Therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. Since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. There is this perspective that Christians have always taught that when it comes to our suffering, we have to look at it with an eternal perspective. It's not just about the circumstances that are right before us. It's about understanding that even within our struggle, there is victory that awaits us. Do you remember what Jesus said to the, to the uh, Christians in Smyrna? He said what awaits them is a victor's crown. There's a victory that comes about for them. And so you think about what it is to be a Christian in Smyrna, and you realize they would have had to have had and held on to this, this perspective of eternity as they went through their, their struggles, which brings us back to Revelation. If you go to the end of the book, or almost at the end of the book, you read again about the beast and the dragon and what happens to them. So here's what Revelation 19 says. I'm going to start reading in verse 11. It says, I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse. 
whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice, he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one knows but he himself, and he is dressed in a robe dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding on white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean, and coming out of his mouth as a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress on the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh, he had this name written, the King of kings and Lord of lords. Let's skip down a few verses. Verse 19, John says, Then I saw the beast. Remember the beast. He's here again, and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider on the white horse and his army. But the beast was captured. Skip down to chapter 20, verse 1 says, And I saw an angel coming down out of heaven, having the key to the abyss, and holding in his hand a great chain. He seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil or Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. A thousand years here would be a figurative. And then we skip again to verse 10. It says, And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of burning sulfur where the beast and the false prophet have been thrown, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. And so throughout the book of Revelation, you have this, uh, this struggle. You see it throughout the pages. And then as you get to the end of the book, you see that the beast and the dragon, the one who's been causing all of this, this pain and struggle, that they are finally defeated. And so you imagine you are a Christian in Smyrna in the late first century. You are poor while everyone is rich. You're persecuted and you live with this constant threat of what am I going to do? How long am I going to suffer? What am I going to endure through the sake of the gospel? And because of your, this truth, because you understand this, this, this hope, you know that your suffering and your struggle is not the end. That your suffering doesn't have the final word, but rather there is a victory that has been won um, for you. Because you live with this vision of eternity. Not just the vision of my own life right now, but I live with a vision of eternity, of what has been accomplished, knowing that the rider on the white horse, who is faithful and true, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that in the end, he is victorious and judgment comes to those who stand in his way. So we might be a long way removed from Smyrna. I mean, our lives are very different from these Christians. We don't have the kinds of questions that they ask. There's not the kinds of persecution and suffering that we're going to face. And yet, as I think about the message that's given to the Smyrnans, and as you think about how it's portrayed, the struggle that's portrayed throughout the book of Revelation with the beast and the dragon trying to deceive and control the nations, eventually being defeated in a great battle. I realize, though, that words like endurance and patience and perseverance are true for the Christian life today, just like they were then. These are not just words for those who are experiencing persecution, but just like them, there's a truth before us to live with an eternal perspective, understanding that the dragon is still there. There is still suffering. There is still pain. There is still a world that is broken and living in fallenness. And yet there is this dragon. There is a beast. It may not be the Roman Empire, but there's all kinds of ways that the dragon still is trying to steal, kill, and destroy to lead people astray and to lead him lead them away from the way of Christ. And so just like these Smyr- Christians from Smyrna, we too need to remember the rider on the white horse. We need to remember that our Savior has won the victory. 
and that his victory is now ours. And so that when we endure, when we persevere, when we live with patience, we also stand to receive the victor's crown. This is the same message that's given to us for them. And so today I want to offer you a word of encouragement. Our lives may not be like these folks from Smyrna, but I want you to consider them. Consider their struggle. Consider their pain. Consider their suffering. And yet consider their faithfulness to live with a perspective that is eternal. And when you find yourself overwhelmed with stress, feeling afraid, living with temptation, remember the rider on the white horse. Remember the victory that is being offered to you. And remember that his victory that has already been accomplished and we will live into eventually in eternity, it is offered to you, the victor's crown. Let's pray together. So Father, today um, we hear your message to these folks in Smyrna. And we certainly realize that our lives and their lives are very different. We don't have the same suffering and persecution that they go through. And yet, Lord, we want to hear this message and realize and understand that even in our own struggles, there is a victory that is given to us. And so we want to receive this victory and to live into your plan for us. Would you give us courage to be faithful, even when it costs us, and allow us to live into your plan for us even today. In the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being here with us today for worship. We want to thank the folks that made this possible. We want to thank our media team, Stephanie for the great announcements. We want to thank our musicians, and we especially want to thank Pastor Spencer for his powerful message. If you know someone that would benefit from this message, we invite you to share it on social media. We thank you so much for doing that. And now, we hope to see you back here next week for week three of Revelation. Have a great week. Suppose I swim the flooded river